The referendum result left many First Nations people feeling deflated. But what about those who didn't fully support the proposal? Ben Abitangelo was a writer and creative and had a unique perspective on the practicalities of an Indigenous voice to Parliament. He was also able to make a number of observations around the way the issue was covered in the media. Ben Abitangelo, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thanks for having me, although I feel like it should be roles reversed. The Jedi in training should be interviewing the Yoda, not the other way around, but whatever. (laughs) You are hilarious. I was actually going to start by asking you, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's really impressed me watching your work over the last couple of years is that you are very thoughtful, but you've got a very strong kind of way of contemplating right and wrong. You've got a very strong sense of social justice. So I thought I'd ask by, start by asking where that comes from. Where did, where, did, where, where did you grow up and what influenced you? Hmm, good question. And I feel like being recognised as someone that's thoughtful is probably the best compliment that can be given because every time I do try and contribute, they're always, you know, I try and make sure that, A, I've got something tangible to say, but more importantly, that it's really considered and that it, you know, as best as possible carries, you know, the historical context in which is alive and that we live in. But I feel like I've been conditioned over the years. It's been a bit of a journey and I've had access to people that have taken diplomatic routes and um, middle of the road thinking. You know, I've been under the watchful tutelage of those that have maintained a deep sense of social justice and maybe not being in the room, but standing outside it and, um, you know, looking to provoke from the pavement. And I spent a a lot of time abroad, I think, you know, in and around different social movements and thinkers that I suppose has um, led to my current conditioning where I try and balance an equal part of conviction, um, but also, you know, an extremity of curiosity, knowing that it's a big world and there's a lot of nuance and complexity and things that need to be considered and taken into account. You did bring a lot of that that nuance and contemplation into your observations and interventions around the discussions around the recent referendum. And I wonder, now that we've seen the result and you've had a chance to look back on that time, what are your reflections on the campaign and what it means for the country? Yeah, I didn't initially set out to contribute as much as I did and you know, throughout the campaign, I kind of just wanted to provide the methodology that underpins my position and my thinking and the way that I'm approaching, you know, the proposal that was in front of everyone. But I feel as though that, you know, the outcome for me, the more that I understood it, the more that I looked into it, the more that I engaged with the history of the, you know, constitutional recognition and the proposal, it just felt like an inevitability. I think the the only variability was just how conclusive the result was going to be. But the categorical nature of the rejection didn't shock me, nor did it really sting me. Um, You know, I I was, and, and, and that was in part why I spent a lot of time thinking about what next and where to when this thing fails and not necessarily if it does. You know, I live in Darwin at the moment. I'm a stone's throw from Dondale, you know, where 10-year-olds are sitting in solitary confinement for 20 hours a day, you know, where pipelines are put through country, um, you know, without the consent of traditional owners. You know, I know that this penal colony has 
not only a knowing that they can do bad things to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but there's almost like this belief that they should do bad things to us and, you know, the living lands and waters that we belong to. So, you know, the contempt that was shown through the vote and, you know, the categorical nature of its rejection, yeah, doesn't necessarily surprise me. I suppose a lot of my thinking now is, you know, how do we rebuild from these referendum rubbles and get back to what I was talking about throughout the referendum cycle is a rights-based approach that, that, that isn't radical, that's just centred around, you know, really rationally what is inherently ours. You know, we've, we've had two decades of minimising, you know, who we are, our relationship to this place and exactly what those rights are. We've almost have revised, you know, those rights to the point where, you know, throughout the campaign there was a lot of talk about, you know, it is our right to be heard. It's actually our right to be making decisions, not actually advising the decision makers. So I'm very much thinking in that realm and then optimistically warmed by, I think, the rage and the disillusionment that I'm seeing from blackfellas across the country as they, you know, heal through what has been a really vitriolic time, but, you know, importantly, fortify and galvanise and think about, okay, how are we going to go within and renew a politics from the past that, you know, is proven and that will amount to... um, you know, dignified change that we are deserving of. I want to talk to you a little bit more about where you think we should go from here and what the way forward is. But you did find yourself during the referendum campaign because of, you know, your reflections and that methodology that you've used, asking questions about um, whether the proposition would deliver what it had promised, um, asking good questions but difficult questions. And I wonder how it felt to find yourself at that point of being somebody who was in a place of scepticism when there were a lot of people around you that were, you know, I guess willing to take things on, on face value. I guess I'm interested in how you how, how it felt to find yourself as, a, in a way, in place as an intellectual outlier, though very strongly intellectual, and what toll the voice referendum process took on you personally? Yeah, I actually found it quite freeing, to be honest. And I'm not, you know, I'm a builder, but I know that you also need to break things if you want to renew and to build. And, you know, I'm also a journalist and that means that I spend a lot of time reading and asking questions and following questions. And, you know, the each question often... Um, unlocks a series of other questions and not necessarily answers. So I spent a lot of time, you know, researching, reading, speaking, um, reading the literature, you know, spending as much time as possible engaging with those that are either on the periphery of, you know, the push for constitutional recognition, um, you know, those that have been, you know, the architects of it, those that have supported it, etc. And just the more that I read and the more that I Uh, understood about the history of it and the machinations that were behind, you know, the final proposal that was taken to, you know, the Australian people. It just, I suppose, strengthened the conviction that it just isn't the way forward. And, you know, I've been reading a lot of uh, literature of late and Eileen Moradin Robinson, who actually references you, you know, at the front of her book, The White Possessive. But she speaks about like in the opening segment that the regulatory mechanisms of nation states are extremely busy reaffirming and reproducing this possessiveness through a process of perpetual Indigenous dispossession, ranging from the refusal of Indigenous sovereignty 
to over-regulated piecemeal concessions. Like that, those words really struck me in the sense that the proposal that was taken to the Australian people was like littered with one-way concessions. It was it was reliant on like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people like pushing, I feel like, our own dehumanisation. You know, when I, I read, you know, the parliamentary records and, the, you know, the Hansard, Hansard transcripts and, you know, the Senate inquiry transcripts from the early 2000s, the mid-2000s, I mean, all of this was about the rest of the country. And when it's for the rest of the country, it just means that I can't support it principally. You know, before the referendum came, you know, the week out, you know, Noel Pearson mentioned at a private King's College event that, like, he was surprised how many Indigenous people supported the proposal, considering that he made it essentially for the rest of the country and so small, you know, that no fair-minded Australian person could reject it. Yeah, just it's just become really obvious that it wasn't really about uh, our rights, our freedom, our, you know, inherent and inalienable position as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It wasn't about, you know, our sovereignty. It wasn't about you know, the assertion of, you know, our rightful place. It was really much about, when I looked at it, making us refugees in our own lands and further legitimising the penal colony at the expense of, you know, who we are and what sustains us. So I know that's a long answer to the question, but I suppose that was how I traversed, you know, throughout the referendum campaign. And the only final thing that I'd say is I just wish that at the beginning we just never threw shade on each other for supporting, for abstaining, for rejecting it. I feel as though that we should have provided each other, you know, as Alexis Wright says, the sovereignty of thought to just make our own decisions. You know, we come from hundreds of politically distinct nations. We have different timelines, relationships, perspectives, you know, with the crown. And we should have just afforded each other the space to make sense of this thing and then within the binaries choose, you know, an approach that, that best fits uh, each nation's circumstances. So... I wish we um yeah, we provided each other the space instead of, you know, what took place was, well, if you're not with us, you're against us approach that campaigners yet yeah, took very early on in the piece. And I think that's been probably one of the most damaging things to come from the campaign. You've talked earlier in our conversation and touched on different aspects of what you would see as a pathway forward. Draw us a picture of where you think the country should be heading. Well, I think what's become really clear to me is that we're going to need to spend a little bit of time going within. I mean, we've had 20 years of distraction that has culminated in what is said to be an advisory body that would give non-binding advice to the same institutional machinery that continues to dispossess us, displace us, dehumanise us. Um, You know, Colin Tatz was reading a book, Black Politics, it was published in 1979, and Colin Tatz was talking about, you know, these advisory bodies amounting to toy telephones um, in the sense that, you know, it doesn't matter the calibre of advice or the calibre of people, you know, that were formulating the thinking. There's just never been anyone there on the other end to action what's being said. So I think there's, I don't know if I have the conviction to, you know, to lay out an absolute blueprint for us to move forward, but I do know that I think there's a, time to be taken where we can actually go back within and rebuild and reimagine um, and re-educate e- each other on what sovereignty is as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait person in a historical and contemporary setting because fundamentally it just appears that there's a, a level of contentment which I think is really unhelpful and gives licence to the state that we're just okay with being inferior, that we're in many instances okay with being second best with being, you know, the advisors rather than the decision makers. So I think there's, 
yeah, that, that there's time and space to, to re-educate, to renew, yeah, our own understandings of sovereignty, you know, what our rights are as Indigenous peoples, you know, how other nations have engaged with Indigenous peoples and the frameworks that are put in place, how rights are protected, expressed, you know, the legal mechanisms that are used to, um, you know, protect that sovereignty. So that's where I want to spend my time. The not knowing I think has for many like a negative connotation to it. I I think the not knowing is actually really exciting and gives us an opportunity to lean in without parameters. And that's where, you know, the the warmth of the rage of blackfellas, you know, on the night of the referendum when the result came in before most could turn on their televisions, I think that's going to be a catalyst for some really transformative thinking and blueprints that will hold us in good stead, you know, over the coming decades. It strikes me and it's something that I've observed about your... Um, nature in the years I've watched your work leading up to the referendum. So it predates that. But listening to you now at a time when there are many in the community that feel very negative about where we stand and very, you know, very disheartened about what might be possible moving forward after after the referendum result, that actually that for somebody who does do deep critique, you're actually quite optimistic. Where does that optimism come, especially at times like this where the rest of the community is saying, you know, actually we don't know where to go from here. We think reconciliation is dead. Mm, well, a couple of responses. I mean, A, I've just never bought into the this is our one shot and the rhetoric and the gamesmanship throughout the campaign that this is the grand final. There is nothing else. It's either this or nothing. Like it's just quite coercive, ugly, and and just patently wrong. Um, There's always possibility. There's always other avenues. Um, It's never an end of a road. We're in the midst of what I've sort of started to flesh out, like a becoming. I'm also excited by the deletion of reconciliation as a doctrine and as a a methodology for us to, you know, repair um, our communities and heal the nation. I feel as though that reconciliation, again, has just been littered with one-way compromises that enables, you know, the penal colony of Australia to take up more space at the expense of, you know, its original uh, inhabitants and occupants. So, yeah, reconciliation, and I'm wary of those that want to keep it in play because it really has been, a you know, a 20-plus year distraction from instituting and protecting our inherent rights as Indigenous peoples. So that's really cool. But for the community, Larissa, like, you know, First and foremost, we just love and care for each other. So when we're hurting or, you know, we, we, we carry that hurt. We don't, you know, turn a blind eye or, or our backs on each other. So I can harness the hurt and feel that, right, that many in the community are, are holding and feeling. But at the same time, I know that, you know, there are other possibilities. And, you know, I was really, you know, Foley's words throughout the referendum campaign really struck with me that, you know, if the referendum does succeed, it'll lead to disillusionment because it's not going to be, you know, a, an advisory body that would take however many years to be set up and then put in place and then to figure things out. Like, we're not going to be content with the progress that it was going to make. So there was an, an inevitability around the level of disillusionment that Indigenous people are going to confront. And I'm just grateful, and I, and I mean that grateful, that that's happened in 2023 and not 2038. So we haven't wasted another 15 years of tinkering around the edges of trying to, you know, appease the rest of the population, but rather get back to 
again, like these inherent rights that we have, that the Commonwealth knows that we have, that other other countries in an interconnected world expect us to have. I'm, I'm optimistic with of what we can create with a clean canvas, with a little bit of time. And fortunately, you know, the government said that they get better results when they listen. They've given themselves, like, they know what we want. Maybe just listen while we, you know, recalibrate and, you know, take stock of where to from here. Oh, ben, you continue to be one of my favourite, most thoughtful, reflective and fresh thinkers in the space. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on Speaking Out and sharing your thoughts with us. Always a pleasure to be in your company, Larissa. Thanks for having me on. That's Ben Abitangelo, writer, creative and advocate.